Oh my goodness, here we are again. We are back. Oh my here. goodness. Oh my goodness. Welcome to Trying to Be Kind, a podcast that talks about TTRPG books that were published or written for the academic to read. Now, we just finished another book and we're starting this one. We're starting The Elusive Shift. And yes, oh my goodness gracious. Clearly, this is our very first episode for our second season. And we are very, very happy to be back. The book. I'm so excited. The book, The Elusive Shift, How Role-Playing Games Forged the Identity by John Peterson, as published by MIT Press. It's okay. nice that there's the word forge right there in the subtitle. Right. You know, it's like I'm going like back to our roots. <laughs> yeah. I'm detecting a theme, and the theme is forging or foraging. There, forging that, that's ahead. That's a terrible pun. <laughs> oh, God. You know, I, well, the, the previous book, I mean, we tried to be kind. <laughs> I think we, we tried to really succeeded. Kind. We tried. I I think we were as kind as we could be under the circumstances. Yes, being kind to ourselves. <laughs> well, yeah, I we had what true. ten episodes of that. It was a lot. <laughs> oh my god, nine episodes. Um, and on that note, on that note, we're starting the way we usually do, which is with our episode zero, looking at the book. Basically, um, just a question for you, friendos: Who's actually read the whole thing? I have not yet. I have not. Fiona? I have. I I am prepared. Like, I have read the whole book. I've got pages bookmarked, and I still have ADHD, so I will still be less on topic than anyone else. But I did read the book. <laughs> Perfect. You know, I mean, that's our dynamic. Who cares? The thing is, the thing is, so I've been reading, uh, I, I don't know, what have you been, I guess before we get into the elusive shift, how did you cleanse your palate from the previous book? Because I found I couldn't just quite dive into the elusive shift without getting out of role-playing game academia for a bit. Oh, yeah. I, I read, I just had to go read, like, like, I read a bunch of A Thousand Thousand Islands that I hadn't gotten to yet, which I recommend, by the way. If, if, you, if you don't have and have not read A Thousand Thousand Islands, you need all of it. So that was my palate cleanser. How about you, Fiona? What is your palate cleanser before you reading The Elusive Shift? My palate cleanser was reading um, and not currently finishing. It's kind of finished, half-finished. Um, Paul Stamen's book about mycology, um, specifically about like restorative ecoforestry and stuff. And I also read um, a French cookbook from the 1970s that is written in the most obnoxious language possible. Meanwhile, I was reading Jane Ward's Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men. How is that? <laughs> wow. When you get down to it, when you look at all of our answers, it's very much on brand. <laughs> I just think, you know... You know, Jared is probably reading a game book and going away and being more purist because, you know, Jared is still a systems person. <laughs> <laughs> and Fiona will have something as, like, varied as French cooking to an environmental, a book of environmental work. 
And of course, I'm gonna read like something queer, 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 queer. <laughs> you know, when you get down to it, it's like I mean, look, sex between straight white men. Of course, Mahar would read that. Yo, I'm just gonna put out a left field suggestion because I don't know if this book's out or not. But one of the participant researchers that was doing stuff on BDSM things and developing protocols was doing a follow up about the Renfair community. And oh I'm just going to say, if we ever want an intermezzo, that's just not game design, but is very adjacent. And we'll really probably okay. one way or another test everything. Is it a book or a paper, Fiona? A book. Um, or was someone's dissertation and I read their book when I was still in grad school. Um, and, you know, doing sex research. Let's see if the follow-up's been done. Okay. Let's see. I mean, I find it really funny, considering that, you know, we're looking now at the elusive shift. And I've honestly only read the first, possibly the first section in the, maybe the first three subsection of the first section. Yeah, I'm only maybe a third of the way through it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, I figure we'll jump sort of more feet first in next episode um, that we can sort of talk broadly and arrange ourselves and that kind of deal today. Yeah. But how about this? We can talk about important first impressions, and then I think we can talk about like our plan of action when it comes to actually reading this book. Because... The last book really burnt us out since we were going through each chapter and I felt like each chapter really kind of singed us in one way or the other. Mm. So that'll be our first thing, right? I would say like, what are your first impressions of the book so far? Well, I, I think it's interesting, like, like I expected it to be somewhat um, analogous to what the the previous book was doing, you know, sort of unpacking a set of theoretical uh, commitments from a group of people at a certain place in time. Um, but I'm surprised at how directly the same this is, just for a different set of people for a different place in time. You know what I mean? Like it's it's very it's a very similar project in some ways, at least on its face. We could get into like um the like political dimension of the previous book and how that might be different from this one but uh, as a as an academic project they seem very of a piece which i i think is nice how about you fiona you've read most of the book i've read all the book i'm very proud of myself um but i oh, good job. i i i liked it you know it it's already writing about things i like so it kind of you know hits the fringe intersection of like history and the development of game history and like sort of sociology of who is playing games that like you know by virtue of being further away feels very different and you know i think that's kind of one of the most interesting things about just the book is the sort of 
as much as there's some weird culture shock to the forge, like, you know, we're, we're not going back decades. Like, you know, this is going back to, I don't think any of us were alive. No, I don't, I doubt it. I yes, we're all that. maidens in context to this book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here's a brief background. This book is actually part of a series of books on game histories. Uh, which are which have been edited by Henry Lowood and Rayford Gins. So we have a number of books here, and the series, and I think it's the last book, actually, in this series. So this series began in 2016. The Elusive Shift was published, well, accordingly, in 2020. And the series forward, I think, asks some fairly good questions that I find really, really useful. So to read from the series forward, what might histories of games tell us not only about the games themselves, but also about the people who play and design them? We think that the most interesting answers to this question will have two characteristics. First, the authors of game histories who tell us the most about games will ask big questions. For example, how do gameplay and design change? In what ways is such change inflected by societal, cultural, and other factors? How do games change when they move from one cultural or historical context to another? These kinds of questions forge connections to other areas of game studies, as well as to history, cultural studies, and technology studies. The second characteristic we seek in the game-changing histories is a wide mix of qualities partially described by terms such as diversity, inclusiveness, and irony. Histories with these qualities deliver interplay of intentions, users, technologies, materials, places, and markets. Asking big questions and answering them in creative and astute ways strikes us as the best way to reach the goal of not an isolated general history of games, but rather a body of game histories that will connect game studies to scholarship in a wide array of fields. The first step, of course, is producing those histories, which I find to be a very clear and a very pointed dig, I think, at other collections of books. If only because the agenda is far less... I mean, okay. Okay, Mahar, let go of the previous book. I... The agenda here is very, very well established, which is it's quite lofty. And it says we want to see what games actually are like, who designed them and what do the games say about those producing them rather than having another agenda of we must remember something. This is actually not even... Uh, imperative. It simply says, here's the goal, here's the task. We don't know yet. We don't know yet what we're supposed to know, but you need the data. And that's why it makes quite a pointed, uh, in my at least, in comparison to what we just read, quite a pointed um, dig in saying we need to produce the history. We don't necessarily need to interpret it. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I like the humility of that a lot. Um, sort of starting from the from a, a place of acknowledgement that like games game design as a discipline and a, and therefore game studies especially game studies focused on tabletop role playing games in any direct way are um, so new that like we have really foundational work to do and that foundational work is by and large not super sexy or exciting necessarily very much so i mean oh you first fiona oh it it's just yeah i think of that as what's really 
interesting is if you even just look at like the scale of this book versus his one on wargaming and just you know how many pages different it is but also how few games are historically studied that have much to do with rpgs like there's a lot of academic work on gambling and there's a lot of academic work on chess and on like game theory and probability but there's not really a lot on like the role of imagination because imagination games really are a smaller field yeah and even game studies like as it exists right now is very laser focused on video games um and the the older stuff that sort of looks at play more broadly tends to be really compromised by, um, we'll say, problematic early anthropological attitudes. Um, well, you know, like, I like how clear, for example, the methodology is and how they also, like, note their challenges right from the very beginning. So, like, Again, just from the just even before a discussion of the book, there was already a note on sources where fanzines are notoriously difficult resources to work with. They often lack clear dates. They operate on regular schedules that mask their lapses by stubbornly attesting their official quote unquote publication date or sometimes eliding it entirely. It is not always clear who wrote a given piece of text in a zine, given unconventional layouts or confusing attributions. Zines don't always have consistent page numbering schemes. A trait they share in common with early self-published role-playing products is often share a publication process. So it goes so on to say, look, we have different ways. Even the, the literature is inconsistent. So you could actually even start seeing, okay, how do we then make the key terms? How do we have... Uh, how do we reference as fanzines properly? Like, seriously, it's a really good question. It's not like you have, you know, an MLA or a, a Chicago Book of Style or Terabian to tell us, how do you actually cite a fanzine? So seeing that the academic rigor in, okay, this is how we're going to do it. And you see the dates and then you see the key sourcing. I'm like, already, I am so pleased. It's like, oh, Oh, look at all of these. Look at all of these zines that they reference to. And then he goes through list after list with how often it was published to how many issues, when they were. Oh, it's just so juicy. I love it. My nerd head is just going, ah, oh, citation format. So clean. It's, it's, a, it's such a pleasure to the soul, isn't it? I mean, seriously. I mean, just those things already telling me I'm probably going to have fun finishing this book. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice to see the emphasis placed on, like, what are also the objects, right? Like, and I think there's always going to be an apples and oranges comparison as much as I also, as a shared point of reference, have, you know, Professor White's book, but, like, right, like, to a degree that's a gate that's a book about a forum and about what people on a forum did to design games and what's really absent for me when reading the elusive shift in very odd ways is that there is an audience in that 
a lot of the elusive shift is about the struggles of the people that kind of invented the fanzine and like publishing culture around rpgs dealing with the notoriety of their field and of the expectations of their players in what was essentially like a recorded conversation but like one that involved a different set of communications in so many ways. Uh, I think the way this book right now we're looking as we're looking at it is actually a lot of like it's about Dungeons and Dragons really. It talks about how the role playing game came to foment. And it you know as it says in the first sentence in in I think is it chapter 1? Oh no! It's I think it's the first sentence of the introduction, where they ask the question, "What is the thing we call a role-playing game?" Dungeons and Dragons 1974 has the distinction of being the first game in this modern genre, according to a broad, if restless, consensus. I mean, is it just me? But is 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 uh, Peterson becoming like, like you know how books say something about the writer, right? And I know that academic texts try very hard to get this position of neutrality because you don't want people to come to their own conclusions. But of course, there, you have your own conclusions as you go down. This whole need to be objective. But according to a broad, if restless consensus, says so much to me just out of word choice. I like <laughs> uh, well, I mean, The like, diction does kind of come out of nowhere. Mm, it's delicious. Just that little subtle bitchery. Oh, love it. <laughs> also, he has like the unenviable task of like he does do, I think, speeches for official like events involving, you know, the current company. Um, like, Oof. I think he's been at some official events. Um, like for Watsi, you mean? Yeah, I, I think like I... I checked his Twitter at some point, um, you know, like has done streams where people that officially work for the company are doing things. And he has his own section where he's talking about some bit of history. It's yeah, he so apparently did a lot of good. research and writing for that art and arcana thing that Wizards mm-hmm. of the Coast put out fairly recently or the past year or two. I mean, look, let's let's look at this already, right? Um, let's just look at how delicious this book gets. I mean, this is why I'm looking so forward to reading it. Uh, here. But anyone sifting through the game's earliest rules will observe the conspicuous absence of role-playing as a term. After experimenting with D&D just after its release, the Minnesota University professor, M.A.R. Baker, sorry, rather, Barker, ventured that it is, quote, not strictly a war game, this contradicted the very cover of the product, which proclaimed itself, in quotes, rules for fantastic medieval wargame campaigns. But Barker was only the first of many to disagree. A whole community of fans soon rallied around the new genre of game that D&D had inspired, to which the label role-playing game would imminently become attached. So, D&D did not pin this label onto itself which ostensibly deprives the genre's foundational text of any authority over the definition of role-playing game. It may have established the category, but it did so unwittingly. It was really the game's audience who perceived in it or perhaps projected onto it this quality they came to call role-playing. 
It is therefore that community of early adopters we must investigate if we want to understand why they chose this label instead of another and what exactly they believed it meant. Delicious. It's like in one paragraph, Gygax's legacy is honestly and evidentially questioned in such a beautiful, succinct, lucid manner. It's like, well, the game itself did not even call itself a role-playing game. Your very, very first text did not call itself that. Mm. Other people called it that. So, And the rest of the chapter does a really good job, I think, of uh, sort of illustrating how gradual... Yes. how gradually the category of role-playing game was built, you know? Yeah. Because and... it was very much a, a war games thing and sort of you work down to smaller and smaller and smaller companies until eventually you're naming individual people on the battlefield. And then suddenly like there's some kind of threshold in there, yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. And, it's and so I think organic. the chapter does a really good job with that. It's so and... organic. And I think it's useful for us to know this right now. So, oh, you first, Fiona. Oh, it's just... There's a quote I highlighted in here mm-hmm. because it really captures the the tone of this like perfectly to the point that like I would, you know, like put it on a greeting card. Um, let me try and put on an orator voice, which I don't have. Gary Gygax commanded a gravitas not to be underestimated, though his position as the steward of both the interpretation and evolution of D&D made him simultaneously the community's most prominent authority and its most reviled object of censure. Innovation and subversion in this period grew with the stridents of Gygax's orthodoxy. That's just beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it's so well written and it's not like it's coming from nowhere there's evidentiary like okay fine one can argue that one can cherry pick one's evidence and citations I mean that's always the case but it's just it's written and it's so pithy it's not bitchy it's pithy there we go oh love it love it though i mean the reason why i think this is rather important for us to read right now and get all of these like these these quotable quotes notwithstanding is because we're actually looking at a book that rather clearly looks at the start of D and role-playing game as a genre and it basically looks at D as dare i say it what we would know now as an indie game mm. And, yeah. Right? And this is something that's quite important for us to look at because even now, decades after the establishment of whatever role playing was called, right? People actually now have a hard time defining what is indie and what is not. People have a hard time, and I would dare say it, we've already seen pushback on people profiting from games such that if you profit so much that it becomes your career, you're no longer an indie publisher. And therefore, you've lost the label, and this becomes the whole art selling out argument all over again, right? So I think it's good for us to look at how did D&D graduate from indie to commercial, for lack of a better term? And is this necessarily a bad thing? And And in the event that this is a bad thing, is it a bad thing because of commercial success? And if so, do we once once do we once again have late stage capitalism to blame, 
Or can you still maintain an indie spirit without having to necessarily say, like, why is there pride, you know, in not doing well commercially? So it becomes all of these things all over again. And I think we need to reinvestigate this because I honestly do feel we're in that position where we're repeating the mistakes of individuals like Gygax who we've reviled in the past. Like, we can't be hypocrites, y'all. We need to admit this. If we are acting like the people who reviled D&D back when it was indie because it was becoming commercially successful, we have a problem. Well, I think it's... And it's, you know... Trying to be kind, but... Nervous silence, nervous silence. Mahar's getting in trouble. No, it's real. No, no. uh, Trying to present... a criticism of the book that's not unkind but rather a thing that i think is interesting right is it's the one thing that i wish this had and you know i know i'm gonna end up harping this note a bunch is there's a lot of discussion about the dialogue and the development of ideas and the discussion and the venues of discussion and even some of the demographics and like emergent player survey stuff but what it doesn't really have in the one bit i wish it did because i know there is some academic writing on this um is a bit on the technology of zine production that is like odnd was made using a print shop and there are print technologies and the question of scaling print technologies selling and doing business stuff is both admittedly business history and like a real question because it's it's one of the paradoxes i think of on the first page right is mar barker is one of the most important people in game history to me at least and is an extremely odd figure and you know was like a college professor so like he didn't need his game to do well and you know a lot of sort of games history focuses on how tsr structured a not very good financial deal for stores to basically not be encouraged to stock empire of the pedal throne because like they didn't really see the idea of like expansion as necessary and there's both an anti-capitalist and a capitalist element to that right like there's the element of well there's the rules like you have an imagination you'll do the rest right that says like you don't need to sell everything and yet there's a deeply capitalist thing to that right of being like once you've got my rules, why would you need any other books in the world? And I think Gary Gygax's shifts and changes in this text and how he views his own, you know, consumer fan friend group, because it's all of those things, is really interesting. No, it's worth thinking. Like, that's why I like this book also. It's even the first few pages are already bringing up, like, questions we really have to think about. There's no automatic answer. I mean, we've. I know I've read through this section, but you pointing that out, it's worth thinking about now. So I do find the book to be quite cogent, and I do find the book to be quite timely in that manner. Right. I'm really and, looking forward to seeing it because, like I said, I'm only maybe, um, maybe a third of the way through the book. But one of the first 
sort of things like chapter one is called the two cultures. And so they're going to pains to set up the, the sort of initial dichotomy of war gaming that D and D stepped into. And I think this is a largely, this is something I didn't really know before reading this. Not really. Um, and I think it's something that probably needs to be said more often that there were these, there were like the, the war gamers, the historical war gamers and the science fiction war gamers at the time. And that they had very different, uh, approaches and the D and D bridged that gap between, or rather spoke to both of those camps. And so that's where we get this sort of uneasy, especially with regard to things like system and rules and immersion and simulation. A lot of things that sound a lot like GNS or the threefold model. Um, these were things that were very much talked about. You know, if this, and this book has citations for that, there are things that are very much talked about, very much considered thoroughly and argued about at the time. And so seeing that sort of um, historical and science fiction uh, dichotomy carry forward through time, I think is going to be really fun as I go through the book. Um, I mean, I do love the very well stated agenda of the book and how it what it hopes to be right which is in this part it goes in the, again in the introduction it is hoped that this book will first and foremost serve as a guide to the key theoretical works of that period and as a summary of their conclusions this critical literature builds on systems at the time so to understand it we must further rescue from obscurity many published and experimental designs that have largely escaped the notice of posterity. It is not the ambition of the study to settle on the tidy dictionary definition of role-playing game, but instead to show historically how the game community came to grapple with agreeing on one. Students of the more recent theory and practice of role-playing games may discover in this body of work some prefigurements of later thinking in design criticism, couched in the vernacular that practitioners spoke at the time. Later theory did not engage with this literature, however, and without sufficient caution, it would be easy to fabricate a dialogue based on parallels that might be significant or superficial, thus coloring our view of early thinking with later inventions. Pointers to potential parallels are therefore confined here to notes in order to give the early writers the space to speak for themselves. It is, after all, to be expected that these ideas recur cyclically in approaches to role-playing games, if indeed the tension at the heart of the original design admits of no entirely satisfactory solution that is so well written oh my god ah so well written so clean so uh, sorry as a teacher who occasionally teaches academic writing isn't that so good don't you yeah, just want to really give good. him an a <laughs> uh, so so uh, so clean so and i love clean. that it you know that that passage sort of acknowledges the letting the primary sources speak a bit which this book does a good bit and that i like because it's remarkable how i mean i guess i shouldn't be surprised but it's remarkable how sophisticated the language and theoretical categories are or were at the time considering it was there was nothing <laughs> you know what i mean well, it does say, like, 
in the first five years of the term RPG being bandied about, it was something really fought over hard by the community. The, edu- the community was well-educated. They had the time. Then they had the passion. For whatever reason, they did feel like this is something that we really need to talk about and this is something that we really need to look at. And again, uh, reflecting this, you know, the cyclical nature of ideas and approaches, doesn't this remind you of the conversation about lyric games and story games? Oh, very much, yeah. yeah. It's like, oh my God, guys, we are guilty of having the same kind of conversation of the game that we deride. <laughs> like Dungeons and Dragon people were having these conversations we had about lyric game and story game. And we laugh at them for playing D&D. I'm just kind of like, everyone, we, we can't, it's like, we can't well, be hypocrites he even, here. <laughs> he even kind of directly says what Bahar was thinking in the introduction. Um, see, this is a part where I was still doing highlighting. Of, uh, Students of the more recent theory and practice of role-playing games may discover in this body of work some prefigurements of later thinking and design and criticism couched in the vernacular that practitioners spoke at the time. Later theory did not engage with this literature. Oh, wait, we actually went through this. God, I am so... I was like, oh, man, I got that quote. But yeah, just this this (laughs) flat circle this flat circle that I just demonstrated because I got a little bit too high. It's okay. We're cyclical within the podcast. We're proving the thesis. (laughs) Yeah. I think the book, at least the first part part of it does a good job of breaking down. Like what's um, going to be discussed. How? Yeah. It's setting itself up, but also like going to great pains right up front to speak to someone like, well, to people like us who are embedded in the conversation that's happening right now um, and sort of put the lie to this common idea that I think gets uncritically passed around that, well, early role-playing theoretical discussions either didn't happen or couldn't have been as sophisticated and nuanced as what we're doing now, and that's demonstrably not the case. I mean, I would argue that to me, based on the technology of the time, things were slower. So the conversations would develop less because they were not happening in public instant time. I mean, we're, we're getting real-time discourse. Yeah. It I mean, they, they did, like, feverishly publish zines as quickly as they could, and, like, broadsheets and everything, it, yeah, it seems. Yeah, but it's like... But, yeah, it's definitely not, slower. These were not going around, right? It's not like... <laughs> people had thousand dollar budgets to sound oh, a zine to say 10,000 people. Yeah. You were lucky to get a zine. You were lucky to be on a mailing list, like an honest to God mailing list when you received <laughs> something in the mail. Yeah. Like with you a know? stamp on it. Yeah. <laughs> with a stamp on it. Like, you know, it was like every month is zine quest basically. Whereas <laughs> here, uh, you know, it's, it just, it, it, you know, it just makes me wonder, this, despite the technological advance, like, we don't have an advancement in understanding. We are having the same kind of conversations. We are not resolving deadlocks in the conversations. And, you know, if anything, it seems like the digging of ideological trenches. They get deeper and deeper these days, I think. Um, yeah. One could even say that there might be a merit in, this, in the slowness because you had time to digest. 
you didn't have time to react. You you had sorry, rather you had time to react. Now that's just me thinking out loud. Uh, but these days, I do think that the the knee jerk reaction to someone positing an idea is far quicker, and dare I say it, a bit more savage because you're still refining the idea as you go along and you're thinking aloud in public and then as you're thinking and composing yourself you're being criticized already yeah because you already have a megaphone on your mouth when you have your initial reaction you know so you can't like take a moment just let the initial reaction happen and then get past it (laughs) you've already said it isn't this all these long pauses i think it's really coming from we're actually thinking about what the book is making us think about. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited to do this. Um, I think it's in areas y'all haven't gotten to, but I think one of the parts of it I really am looking forward to discussing is like the first big disconnect of almost all the new players are nothing like the existing body of players and people are having some feelings. Because I think that's both evergreen Mm. and timeless and simultaneously always the newest thing that's happening and a crisis that has, you know, there's never been a parallel in history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the impression I'm getting from this book is basically it seems like RPGs are populated by Les Enfants Terribles, you know? It's just like... It's like like whenever someone makes something, there's always going to be this person who then subverts or disrupts the new term how things work and then from there you're just gonna move it's oh i'm so excited to read this book fiona your recommendation is so joyfully joyfully appreciated it this was originally so do we want to that that recommended this book oh yeah i i I, yeah i think i think so i think so oh my god i'm sorry i missed you're fine credit well, it didn't come I from just, me. So because the two of you, once again, I feel like I'm going to become smarter. <laughs> Theo, what you were saying? Oh, no, I I was just interrupting to make sure I didn't get wrong credit. Um, and Jared was saying something. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, do we want to um, like take a step back into the meta and talk about how we're going to chop this up into episodes? Okay, so... Friends, listeners, people who had to bear with us slogging through chapter after chapter. We're not doing that this time. <laughs> We're not. We're going to do this in a variety of themes. Um, what those themes will be, we don't know yet. We have day jobs. But we do promise you that this will be, I think, a shorter season as a result. Because we'll be looking at things from a thematic point of view rather than from a purely content point of view. That's less exhausting. I think we'll probably get through this in like half as many episodes at most. Yeah. Well, who knows? It just might mean that seasons now will cover more books. Yeah. And we might, you know, we'll just go until we don't have anything else to say, I guess. But Jared, knowing us, (laughs) when do we not have anything to say? (laughs) I mean, Jared. We'll go until we're bored. Jared. Jared (laughs) Bear. Thank you for being a friend. <laughs> the fifth golden girl, Jared. You're the one who's like, a, you're a potster, Jared. 
I say like three things. <laughs> I have three talking points. Every single talking point is a cherry bomb in a toilet. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's, it will really be more of will we have energy, <laughs> you know? Because I don't know about you, but this, uh, the last two years have been very enervating. Yeah, that's real. Yeah, that's real. Okay, maybe two real friends. I'm sorry about that. Okay, so we'll be doing this in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of themes. But I'm really, really excited because I think, if anything, this book tries to ground you in your contemporary practice. I think it's going to, I think reading just the first chapter and a half, it made me a little bit more conscious of how to engage discursively knowing that we're repeating the mistakes of the past. Mm. And that means we need to change some of our discursive practices if we want to get new answers and new yeah. design for that matter. Absolutely. I think that alone is like, uh, really got me jazzed about doing this book. Cause I feel like there's some real work to be done. <laughs> yeah. Also... Yana, how about you? Do you have anything there? Yeah. I mean, I'm a, Excited to do this. Uh, apparently, his follow follow up book is coming soon. Um, oh, there's a follow up. Yep, yeah, uh, on Arnis and Gygax. Like it, it's just the two of them. Like that apparently is the billing. I think I pre ordered it on a book ordering website, and you know I should go to my local bookstore and order it there because that's probably the better thing to do but you know we're all imperfect oh, and i'm trying to be game kind wizards? to myself something like that yeah yeah game wizards and the title is in souvenir oh my goodness i think we have a full season planned ahead of us now it's <laughs> almost like i'm hearing season 2a and season 2b and <laughs> maybe we will we will be this among the first so reviewers fun. of a book that aren't you know given advanced copies. We should write a message to MIT Press and just be like, "Hey, one of our podcast members is located in your state. Would you like to just give us your books from your game series? We'll review them online to an audience." Oh, this Gygax Arneson book looks like really salacious. This looks like a tell-all, and I'm I'm here for it. Oh, Jared, see, this is, see, you pot stirrer. <laughs> Look at you. Jared is like the Swedish Delicious. Golden Girls. I love like, ancient gossip. I'm like... sorry. Oh, oh dear. What did, did you hear who Zeus ran off with last week? Who was <laughs> exactly. it this time? Oh, that poor girl, Io. She was turned into a cow. I thought that was Europa. No, no, Io was turned into a cow. Europa flew off with a cow. Oh, that's Zeus. <laughs> I mean, that is what Jared is. Mm -hmm. Oh no! Are we rethinking our triad? Are we going to no longer be the mother maiden crone this year? I wonder. Um, I don't know. I have a feeling we might be something else. I think we might be the fates. We're transforming. I think we're transforming. I think. Uh, I think we're going to be like uh, past, present, future soon. Someone's going to be Skulled, someone's going to be Erd, and someone's going to be Verdandi. Oh, this will be so nice. 
Okay, uh, that said, I think on that note, we might have an episode here, friends. I think that's that's good for me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, now I'm, I'm looking just, forward to it. I'm stoked. I kind of want to clear the rest of my schedule, not do my errands, and just read the book. My roommate is out of town all week this week, so I'm just going to be bored out of my mind, so I'm going to end up reading a bunch of that. You know, Jared... When you said that your roommate was out this week, I thought you were going to have like, oh my gosh, we're now going to have Jared's version of a kegger, a book, <laughs> a nice long sit down with a book. You got it. I'm going to rewatch Conan the Barbarian and I'm going to read the elusive shift. <laughs> the wild influencer <laughs> lifestyle of games most contrarian young millennial. He sleeps a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Prior to this descent into like casual madness, this is season two of Trying to Be Kind. We are looking forward to people sharing their thoughts as we go through this book. Once again, the book is The Elusive Shift by John Peterson, published 2020 MIT Press. <laughs>